0: the Quantum Mechanics. Yes, we are the Quantum Mechanics. We're the podcast that delves under the hood of the paranormal, the strange and the unexplained. And we've got something very strange, very unexplained and very exciting today, right, Ben?
1: Yeah, we do. This is one of my very favourite cases. I think this, to me, is the epitome of why we started this podcast, why I've been enthralled by the paranormal for years and it's Jeff the talking mongoose or if you prefer the older name for it the Dolby spook and this is something I'm go happened... for Jeff, the talking mongoose it's much better yeah it's better. a bit yeah it sounds better doesn't it it's something that happened in the hamlet of Dolby on the Isle of Man in the very early 1930s and it was a case that was investigated by the famous ghost hunter Harry Price and it defies explanation. Now, Harry Price actually released a book about this in 1936, and since then it's been quite difficult to get sort of a decent academic view of the case, and that is until Christopher Joseph released the book called Jeff, The Strange Tale of an Extra-Special Talking Mongoose. It's a thick tome of very nearly 400 pages, but Christopher writes with an academic style that is both engaging and humorous. He's a regular contributor to the Fortian Times and I have the great pleasure of saying he is with us today to talk about Jeff, one of the most glorious cases that you will ever hear about. So Christopher Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. I, I just want to start by saying how much I have enjoyed your book. I was absolutely blown away by the facts about the case and the style of the writing. I, I've been awake till four in the morning reading this book. How, how did you first come across the case of Jeff the Mongoose?
2: Well, I'm a librarian, library cataloguer, and many years ago I started working at the University of London Library in Senate House in Bloomsbury. And and when you start, they give you a brief introduction into the different departments of the library and they were showing me around the special collections and archives. um, uh, And the conservator said, yes, we've we've got many archives of interesting people here, including Harry Price, the ghost hunter, who I vaguely remembered from Baldy Rectory and stuff like that. Um, And he started talking about Price's famous cases. And he said, ah, but my famous, my my, my favourite is there, the case of the talking mongoose. And I very vaguely remembered having read it in A Children, Book. I think it was one of the Usborne, uh, ghosts.
1: Oh, the Osborne Book of Ghosts. Yeah.
2: yeah, the one that's just been republished. I don't know if they've republished the one with Jeff, but it had a very sinister illustration with huge yellow hands coming down from yeah, the ceiling. Yeah. Anyway, I, I kind of vaguely remembered this, and I thought, ah, well, you know, um, I'm here now. I'm in the building. They've got these archives. I can just pop down at lunchtime and after work and have a flip through prices, files, and I'll be able to establish quite quickly whether it was genuine or a hoax. Um, And then seven years later, you know... (laughs) Still
0: going. (laughs) Yeah, a
2: a book emerged because it. the more I read, the more complicated it got, and, and I couldn't establish whether it was simply a fraud or a collective mental illness or, or if it was uh haunting or poltergeist, I, I ended up thinking it was all of these and more. Uh, mm. And I think that's probably what that complexity and those layers uh, is what kind of hooked me in and caused me to spend so much of my life <laughs> working on it.
1: So. so I think for our listeners, there's probably There'll be a bunch of people that have never heard of it uh, and probably think that the phrase Jeff the Talking Mongoose is sort of slightly ridiculous. And there'll be a bunch of people, which includes me before I'd read your book, who had assumed that it was just a case of a child who was, who was messing around and that that's how it came about. But what I'd quite like to do is just talk to you about how this case grew. So my understanding is that it all starts in September 1931 and around the Irving
2: family. Um, yes, you're right. It it began in autumn 1931 uh, at a very remote farmhouse in the very rural part southwest of the Isle of Man, uh, this Farming family called the Irvings. I say farming family guardedly because they weren't traditional Manx farmers. They'd actually come from Liverpool and moved uh, some years before uh, to set up as farmers on on what seems to be a whim. Uh, They weren't particularly successful. In fact, by the time that this Jeff phenomenon began, they were living in abject poverty. And what seems to have happened is... Either the daughter, who was 12 at the time, her name was Vori, that's Manx version of Mary, Mm -hmm. or her father James, one of the two, saw a little animal in the yard, uh, a little animal about 12 inches long, a bit like a weasel or a stoat. Or, and stories vary, they they heard some noises from behind, uh, behind the walls. And gradually it seems that this thing first began to imitate their voices, uh, and then it quite rapidly developed human speech. This this is according to the Irving's own account. Yeah. Um, and it should be pointed out that by far the greatest uh, evidence, that the majority of the evidence we have is from James Irving, the father, who tended to dominate proceedings. And he was very obsessed with this case and he wrote reams and reams of diaries and letters, which which is what's the bulk of what's in the the Jeff file in the Harry Price Library. Um, So initially, yes, this was just a little animal that they occasionally saw, but mostly heard, talking in a high-pitched voice, uh, supposedly two octaves higher than a human voice. Uh then word began to spread down at the village. Uh, it sort of became the talk of the neighbourhood. And then once it spread to England uh, and uh, Manchester, a Manchester journalist sent over to investigate, then it really took off. But initially it was localised in, in the Isle of Man and the Isle of Man press.
1: So uh, it's sort of worth mentioning that at that time in the early 1930s, the tabloid press were quite interested in this kind of story, right? They were, this is one of the things that sold papers.
2: I have wondered if the news at the time, 1931, 32, was so grim with the depression, mm-hmm. rise of fascism, fear of another war, etc., mm-hmm. whether they were looking for some comical and light story Mm. Uh, I think that does go part way to explain why this was seized upon by well not just the British press but the world's press in effect Um, but that isn't the only reason I don't think the fact is that several people well quite a few many people who went to the farm heard this voice of this little animal uh some of whom were convinced some of whom weren't um but there was there was enough there for people to think oh, you know that there is something going yeah. on
0: here uh, do you think also we we were talking the other week about um cliches within the kind of haunted world of you know it's a white woman in a Victorian dress. Do you think there's something about this case where it, 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 it's almost completely non-paranormal clichéd, isn't it? it gives, there's not the usual tropes that you get with a paranormal story. Do you think that's helped spread it?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And and it's it's notable that initially in, in some of the early press reports, they did try and frame it as if it was uh, haunting or a possession. Uh, what, one of the very early headlines I can think of which is housed possessed by a mongoose um, <laughs> and, and and they would talk about haunting and um, but this wasn't something that the urbanvin family were initially interested in they didn't have any uh, dealings with or interest in spiritualism um, at the outset in fact it's quite surprising that at the very start of this when so I said the, the first English newspaper was the manchester daily dispatch and this journalist goes over to the isle of man and jim irving says come in i'll tell you all about it there's nothing supernatural going on uh, yeah. so he seems to think it's quite normal that a, a little animal a little weasel or a rat has learned to speak and sing in different languages and um tell jokes and have philosophical discussions Mm. as if he thinks that's a more rational explanation than (laughs) a haunting or a possession but as time went on and they were i don't want to say bombarded but they they had a a lot of visitors a lot of people writing to them a lot of discussion in uh, the press a lot of which were from spiritualist newspapers and mediums and people like that then Jim Irving starts to change his mind and he he does talk in terms of earthbound spirits and he investigated who was living in the farm prior to him and whether it could be a, a ghost of someone living before there. Um, Jeff said he was a ghost in the form of a weasel. Um, mm. But he also said he was a mongoose and he he said a lot of things. He said he was born in India in 1852. Mm. Um, and he had a very detailed and elaborate description of how he arrived at the Isle of Man from India. So, so he'd seen the pyramids and he'd on this amazing journey.
1: So I think one of the things that for people who aren't massively familiar with the case, like there are there are Jeff's quotes which I do want to get onto because um, I some of them have even made themselves uh, turned into um, song lyrics, but the. The layout of the farmhouse, I think, is quite important because it has panelled walls, doesn't
2: it? Yes, it's so this is a farm. It's not in the village. It's halfway up. Well, it's called a mountain, Dolby Mountain. It's more of a steep hill. But it's very bleak, um, very exposed to winds and rain and snow, very cold. So what Jim Irving did is he lined the interior stone walls with some wooden panelling um, all the way through and between the stone and the wooden panelling was about a four inches gap which was just about enough for a little animal to run around and um, go from room to room it's it's also a possibility suggested by harry price that the whole house was an echo chamber
1: mm-hmm.
2: which is quite a good theory but rather annoyingly he doesn't seem to have tested this he did mm-hmm. visit there he didn't stay very long he was only there for a night or two but it would have been quite easy to go on the first floor at the top of the stairs and shout into one of the corners and see if his assistant downstairs would have heard this hmm so it just has to remain a theory
1: The first thing that the Irving family hear um, in some of the reports is that they hear knockings and bangs behind these panels. And then one day this voice comes out and, however unlikely it sounds, it introduces itself as this mongoose. And is there any record of how that struck the family because I think I'd I'd be shocked to my core. But as you say, it seems like Jim Irving accepted it almost.
2: He does seem to have rather bizarrely seen this as, um, a fantastic and amazing thing, but it's a talking animal. Um, as i say we, we're very limited in what we know about the what the mother and daughter thought because about 95 percent of the writings and, and the recorded sayings are, are of jim irving uh we do get some glimpses of what the daughter and the mother thought um initially i should just point out initially he wasn't a mongoose he was a, a ghost in the form of a weasel right um, and he said his name was jack And then at some point in, I think it was early 1932, about February, so by then, this was a kind of topic for discussion in the uh, Isle of Man press, someone wrote in to say, did you realise that there are half a dozen mongooses living six miles away? Because what had happened, and this is a match record, uh, a nearby farmer had imported half a dozen mongooses or mongi or mongoose. <laughs> mongoose, I'm told, is the correct plural. Right. Um, because he had a rabbit problem and there are apparently no foxes on the Isle of Man to control the rabbit. So the British Empire being in full flow, you could easily acquire mongoose from India or Caribbean. So there, there were corporeal non-talking mongoose in the vicinity this local chap wrote in saying well do you think it could be a mongoose and then jeff seems to have responded to that and thought well, no i like that that's a bit more exotic that's more interesting right and then he also saw the name jeff written down in a newspaper he was apparently able to read um he couldn't spell uh, so it was phonetically g-e-f it's uh, jeff um there is a sense in which well depends how you see it either jeff himself or the family if you think that they're fabricating all this there's a sense that they're constantly reacting to outside suggestions and outside stimuli and they're adapting the story so from being jack the weasel he quite rapidly becomes jeff the mongoose from being just an ordinary physical animal that happens to talk he then becomes an earthbound spirit and a poltergeist. And the story is constantly changing in response to other people's ideas and suggestions.
1: Well, I think one of the things that he says, I think he refers to himself as a freak and he says, I have hands and I have feet. And if you saw me, you'd faint, you'd be petrified, mummified, turned into a stone or a pillar of salt, which is sort of typical of the kind of, uh, Uh, the way
2: that he expresses himself, right? Maybe a little bit biblical. um, And and sometimes he used the word thou. When uh, Margaret Irving, the wife and mother, was quizzing him about what what exactly was, what was his true nature, he said, of course I know what I am and and thou wilt never know, thou wilt never find out. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that he was deriving this from a king james bible because jim irving although they weren't religious people jim did uh he read and preached in the local chapel um and he was a voracious reader and they they had a bible in the house he he said a lot of things you know you can't really trust what jeff said he, he uh I am a ghost in the form of a weasel and I shall haunt you with weird noises and clanking chains. (laughs) Um, The thing about the hands and feet, though, is quite accurate because when all three of the Irvings claimed to have seen him, uh, in fact, there were two or three other people in the neighbourhood who also said they'd seen him, which which I think is important. Um, The Irvings gave a description to harry price who then commissioned a, an artist's impression um, it's, it's quite well known you can find it on the net
1: it's that kind of uh, pencil sketch
2: that's right yes yeah. it's, it's in profile and what's remarkable is that the, the forepaws are much bigger than the rear paws um and and jeff said well yes this is I have these human-like hands and that's how I can bang on the walls and make such a noise and I can steal little objects from nearby farms. He he would go around roaming around the neighbourhood and exploring and spying on people and bringing back trophies like paintbrushes and cufflinks. And But, of course, there there is no known animal that has huge, great big front paws when it's only... Six inches long, plus a six-inch yeah. bushy tail, and
1: and I think that is one of the most enigmatic things. We'll come on to the photographs later, but there there is he leaves physical proof of his existence, and not only does he bring physical proof, and there are uh, paw prints found, but he also takes food, right? Because one of the deals of living with Jeff is that the Irving family have to leave him food.
2: Yes, and I think this is one of the weirdest aspects of what is a very strange case, that he he told the Irvings he must have food to live. He also claimed to have caught a cold and a cough. Um, so, I mean, this is why... I think i got so obsessed by this case because just when i thought oh it's a poltergeist because there there are several quite archetypal poltergeist phenomena like a voice and uh, stones being thrown and little objects appearing and disappearing mm. um and just when you think oh okay it's a poltergeist well hang on a minute who ever hold of heard of a poltergeist that could catch a cold or, or mm. would urinate over people it didn't like and uh yeah and and as you say eating food
1: mm. and th- this this again is something um of his uh character that comes out so sometimes he seems to be very helpful he reports on uh, strange people and dogs that come near the house but also is threatening he he says that he could kill people if he wanted to and he's but the way that he says it it's almost um He's, he's almost playing a role. It feels like he's trying to portray a character rather than uh, just be this sort of ghost. He wants people to engage with him, is the is what I take away from it.
2: Yeah, yes. And he did, although he did threaten a great deal, it was very bombastic. You know, I could kill you all. I could kill your poultry. Um, I'll, I'll smash his windows in... He never really did any of these things. Um, mm. I I did initially think the case was entirely unique, but once I'd started to read about uh, poltergeist cases, it did strike me that there were a number of similarities, and, and not just in the, the stone throwing or a voice or the objects, but the, the character, um, which is... Yes, mischievous and petulant and sometimes threatening. And, and it is a, it does, I don't want to say it's the same character, I'm sure it's not, but it, you do seem to find this in um, the Battersea poltergeist, um, the, the Bell Witch, if that was a poltergeist. Um, it, there does seem to be this kind of grandiosity, uh, somehow playful, sometimes threatening. It may Maybe it's a teenage characteristic and maybe yeah. this connects into the theory of poltergeist as uh, linked to teenagers, possibly trouble teenagers. But it's well, funny,
0: as you're talking about it, it's almost sounding like the Jack Nicholson of kind of the poltergeist world. It's kind of... And it fascinated me when, you know, you were saying that the type of creature, when the story, the type of creature changed, the name changed... But despite all these changes and things going on and, you know, almost the unbelievable nature of it, there's something about Jeff that you kind of, you look past all that. You almost forgive him and just go with the story, even though there's all this stuff that's telling you you shouldn't. Did you find that when you were looking into it? You, you, I mean, you said at first you you had a kind of set idea of of what it might be about, but... It kind of, it seems quite easy to fall in love with Jeff and the idea of Jeff,
2: yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and I think one reason for that is that there's a, a vulnerability about him, leaving aside these threats to kill people and kill people's poultry. And um, he, he would sometimes be, Oh, don't leave me, he would say, You know, sometimes that the family would say, Well, we've, we've had enough of this, it's cold and lonely and the farms failing and we're, we're going to go back to liverpool and he would say quite plaintively well don't leave me what will happen if i go um or he when he would so what would happen typically is he would appear sometimes in the evening and then he would talk and talk and talk until the early hours and um, god knows how they got any sleep um it has occurred to me that they were in a mild state of sleep deprivation for several years. But he he would talk and talk and entertain him and sing songs and all this stuff, carry on. And then when he wanted to go, he would just sort of cry, vanished, and he, Jim Irving would say he'd hear a kind of thump as if he'd jumped down. And when they quizzed him about where, where he was going, he'd say, I, I've got to go back to the underground uh, or to hell. He, he often talked about hell. Um, so there is something a bit sad, I think, about Jeff, uh, especially if you buy into the idea of an earthbound spirit—someone mm. that was something or someone that's trapped in that house. He he said at one point he'd been waiting there for some time for uh, a sympathetic person or persons through whom he could manifest, um, mm-hmm. uh, and there there is some evidence to say that the. The farmhouse is far older than the than that Jim Irving thought it was. He thought it was built in 1840, but there is a good deal of evidence to suggest that it's several hundred years old. Um, there's a lot of old buildings, uh, Norse buildings, this prehistoric burial mounds, all sorts of stuff, early Christian chapels. The area was clearly inhabited for hundreds if not thousands of years so if if you buy into a supernatural explanation it is tempting to think this is a spirit that was hanging around waiting for suitable sensitive Mm. or sympathetic people through whom manifest into our world
1: but i i completely understand that but what is weird about it is quite often when you hear stories about spirits that are hanging around they tell you about their previous life this if this is a spirit it it doesn't deviate from the fact i uh, uh, okay it changes species of animal but it remains it's an animal and it says it was born in new delhi i believe uh about 80 years before it's bothering the irving family and it never once sort of says oh, actually, I'm in this form now, but I was something else before. It never claims to have been a
2: human, does it? That's a good point, actually, because I'm, I'm now thinking of the Enfield Poltergeist and whether that was one or several entities, they did give some information about a previous occupant of the house. Mm. I think the Battersea one did that as well. Mm. Uh, what seems to happen in these cases is that this these spirits if that's what they are give very precise and detailed information which when it's checked against um electoral records or birth or death certificates doesn't quite match up it matches up only in parts um but as you say jeff didn't do that The, the closest i think he ever got to do that was um there was a strange character of the 19th century called Baum, the old French miser, a very weird character, um, who either lived in this farmhouse or owned it. He was he was thought to be an old tramp, and in fact, when he died, he seemed to be incredibly wealthy and he owned lots of property. Uh, and there was a suggestion that Jeff was the kind of reincarnation of this chap, but he doesn't really seem to have made much of that. In fact, I think it was more Jim Irving was grasping at at that. So, so you're Mm -hmm. right. This, that, that is another instance of of this being unique, just as the eating food and catching a cold uh, aspects are, are unique. Yeah. So
1: when, when it reached, uh, when the story reached, uh, a sort of an uh, a a some fame who was the first person of note to come and investigate
2: well harry price i guess was the first person but he didn't go there until 1935 uh, what seems to have happened is that a friend of the irvings wrote to harry price because he was the most high profile psychic investigator of the time and because of uh he was very well known so this friend wrote to him in 1932 and said oh there's something amazing happening in the isle of man you need to investigate it but he didn't he did send one of his investigators up there a a chap called captain harold dennis uh and Captain Dennis went to the farm on three occasions, and he was apparently quite a level headed chap. He was an ex naval officer. Price regarded him as nobody's fool, he wasn't gullible or skeptical. But on each occasion, Dennis reported back he'd either seen or heard something inexplicable. So he'd heard Jeff's voice at a time when he could see the parents in full view and he knew the daughter was out in the fields. He could see her. She was maybe 100 feet away. Uh, another time, the mother was in the nearby town of Peel um, and he was talking to the father and he knew the daughter was in in the farmhouse. Uh, they were outside in the field, but they could hear Jeff's voice and there were things thrown at him, but, uh, a large needle and he heard noises in uh other rooms when he was convinced they were empty so he was convinced enough to say there is something worth investigating but it was only in 1935 that harry price actually went there and he was rather disappointed because he was expecting i suppose that jeff would appear singing and dancing and there was nothing nothing at all um because Jeff said he didn't like didn't like Harry Price,
1: and I think he said he didn't like him because he was not going to be a believer, right?
2: He didn't like doubters. He was very down on mm. doubters. Jeff, if if you gave any indication that you were a skeptic, he wouldn't appear for you. Uh, he was very against Price because Price was well known as having exposed various fraudulent mediums like Helen Duncan, well, if you think she was fraudulent, but that's another matter. Price, she said, he's the man that puts the kibosh on the spirits. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Dennis was all right. He liked Captain Dennis because I think Dennis was quite open-minded and once he'd would he gone there with an open mind and once he'd seen and heard these things that he, he couldn't explain, he... he seemed to be a believer uh, uh, and seemed to get on with Jeff. But uh, no, not Price. In fact, he he threatened to smash Harry Price's windows in, I think. Um didn't like him at all.
1: And I think this is one of the most astonishing things about this case is there's a lot of people who've got a lot to lose reputation-wise who become involved with this case. So I believe that Harry Price in 1936 produced uh the book the haunting of cash gap which i think was quite brave because it was an objective reporting but it didn't it didn't um say that it was true or false It didn't take a view it just said here's here's the case
2: he was very careful about how he worded it um Well, it was actually co-written with uh, his friend Rex Lambert, who was then the editor of The Listener, who who had also gone up to the Isle of Man with him. But they were both very careful about how they phrased this. Um, And Price subsequently said it was because of the fear of uh, legal action that if he had said this is an out-and-out hoax, he he was fearful of... um, Jim Irving would have sued him. Uh, he he told someone, one of his correspondents, this was never made public, but this is one of the letters in the, the archive, which I consulted. He, he said it, he thinks it is a hoax, but not for financial gain. Um, and this is, again, one of the strange aspects of it, that those who believe it was a hoax, and there are quite a few... It's quite a lot of evidence to suggest it was a hoax, which I hope we'll come on to later. But there were also opportunities for James Irving to profit by it, uh, and he didn't. So, for example, once this became big news uh, nationally, internationally as well, a national newspaper offered to buy one of these alleged photographs of Jeff. And, and jim said no you know I, I it's so difficult to photograph him he's so shy that i didn't part with the negatives um he some people alleged that he'd been charging money for visitors you know like farmers might charge a pound to go into a field where there's a crop circle yeah. um and this was alleged there's no evidence for that in fact he he discouraged people going to the farm he complained that the farm was being disrupted by all these so to set the scene. It's the early thirties in a fairly rural part of the Isle of Man. There's not a lot of entertainment. Most people don't have radios or TVs. I think the nearest cinema was about eight miles away. There wasn't a lot to do. And what seemed to be the the thing to entertain on Friday or Saturday night. Let's go up the hill and see if Jeff's in. And there would be, yeah, regularly scores of people going up there. And Jim Irving complained they're damaging the farm, they're stealing bits of the farm for souvenirs. And he actually placed an advert in one of the local papers saying no visitors except by, you know, invitation. So whenever you think there is some kind of financial or monetary gain that doesn't seem to have been borne out by the facts
1: um with all of these things I think the uh sort of the way that one would normally solve it sort of scooby-doo style is to follow the money because as you uh, when you set set this up you said that they were not very well off at all and they were struggling and you would think that if you were going to make something up as elaborate as this you would try to take some money from it and and the the tabloid paper seems to be the obvious route to go with um you, you know selling photographs and such and if it was if it was made up you you would readily give the the um uh, uh negative away because you know, you knew that it was faked. You knew Absolutely. that this was and this was part of what you were trying to do to bring in money, but none of this happened. It seems like he was very constrained into what he offered and, and got annoyed when there was too much attention from the wrong people.
2: The other um, financial offer, which was an extraordinary sum of money, uh, some kind of American theatrical impresario, kind of Barnum T. Bailey type character, offered $50,000, now this was a huge sum in in the 30s, Uh, $50,000, half of it cash up front just for the exclusive rights to Jeff, um, and Jim Irving refused, I think partly thinking, well, we're not going to capture him anyway, Uh, but also he said he didn't like the idea of Jeff being paraded around the US like a freak uh, in a cage Um, there is a weird sense in some diary entries that he sees Jeff as some kind of surrogate son Mm. Uh, I should perhaps explain that Vori the daughter wasn't the only child there were two other children, two older children Uh, she had an older brother and sister the brother Gilbert had somehow had some kind of falling out with the father He he used to help out on the farm, uh, but he'd left, gone to England. Um, They weren't really on speaking terms. And there is a sense in the way that he talks about Jim. uh, Jim talks about Jeff, my lad, or his nibs, or his highness, as a sort of weird affection uh, about... Jeff as being this member of the family who he doesn't want to see captured and exploited, uh, and who's this precious thing.
0: But but I think that's what I think. What's really interesting as well is is even with that, even with the follow the money points, that you know whether it's true or false as a story, even that's unconventional, right? <laughs> everything about it seems to be to- totally contradictory to what what the norms for these type of things are. It's fascinating
2: i think i started thinking this case was completely unique and that's what a lot of people say that this is completely unparalleled in in the history of psychical research or hauntings or ghosts and um as i looked into it more i did come to think well actually there there are other instances of poltergeist haunting cases where there's a voice uh, a garrulous and irreverent and quite sweary voice and you know there are other cases where little rocks and pebbles are thrown but you're right we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is unique in in many aspects price told this correspondence this was not for publication he said he had to be careful what he wrote in his haunting of cash and Scat book uh for reasons of libel or slander he said he thought the motive was fraud but not for financial gain reasons which we've just discussed he he called it a psychological hoax uh, and what he seems to have thought is that Jim Irving's frustrated ambitions had caused him to invent this uh, rather bizarre fantasy which he'd somehow got his wife and daughter roped in on uh, which is contrary to what the local people thought they thought it was the mother and the daughter fabricating it and they would fooled the father perhaps i should explain at the stage that i said that they weren't indigenous manx farmers they'd come from liverpool when they were in liverpool before the first world war they had quite a good living jim was a, he was an agent for a canadian piano and organ company the dominion organ and piano company so he was their kind of uk representative and apparently he made quite a good living and uh i think it was 600 pounds a year which i calculated was about 35 40 thousand uh, pounds a year which was quite substantial for the family by the time this jeff had appeared their income was 39 pounds a year which depends how you calculate it but it's something like 1500 pounds a year so they were very very poor uh there are some rather pitiful letters i've seen where the daughter has to go to school barefoot so bearing in mind it was a two mile round trip to the nearest school uh quite as well it depends how you get there one route is like a horrible muddy field the other one is a really steep rocky path which gets overrun with water and becomes a sort of deluge type stream um they were very very poor which makes the refusal of um financial offers all the more
0: strange although i was i was thinking though while you were talking um it seems like Jim was quite a kind of control freak in some ways but from what you're saying that he kind of he was in charge of the message and what was going on do you think that maybe that there's a chance that when it got so big and it was coming out of his control then that's when he kind of backed away from it a little bit could that have been a motivation that he had to be in control of it and he was happy but when he lost control of it then it was more difficult
2: I don't think he ever did lose control of it. I think what happened right. is Jeff's appearances just became less and less. So he, what would happen is he would go roaming around the neighbourhood and he'd kind of spy on people and bring back gossip, but, which was always quite mundane, incidentally. It was always about, oh, that farmer's wife is knitting the farmer a new jumper or they've, they've lost uh, a chicken. or It was actually quite tedious. Um, right which makes me think if you were going to fabricate a story at that time when there was fear of another war, fear of the rise of fascism, wouldn't you give your imaginary spook some kind of predictions about world events? Um,
1: But it's also key to point out that those mundane facts, they were all true, right?
2: Yes, and this is why local people were well, many of them were convinced that there was something going on. Uh, Famously, the the bus depot workers at Peel, Peel's the nearest town. And Jeff supposedly would go down to Peel and then sneak into the bus depot and listen to what the engineers and the bus drivers were talking about. One of them said he had his sandwiches stolen um, and he was so furious that he set a trap on underneath one of the buses. it's was kind of an electric kind of trap. Um, another driver lived on his own on the first floor of a little flat in Peel. And Jim Irwin was able to describe the interior very accurately, you know, down to the wallpaper and the fireplace. Um, and he was quite spooked by it. They were all quite spooked by all this. Um, there was quite a big manor house called Ballamore, which Jeff gave a very detailed description of the interior. And it's not, these were very well-to-do people in Ballymore It's not the kind of place where someone as poor as the Irvings would have been invited to. And yet his description of the tiles and, uh, yeah, the, the, the two fittings beside the fireplace and the doorway were proven to be accurate.
1: So, so the, the, the evidence for his existence seems to be relatively uh sort of obvious to anybody that observed it what is the key piece of evidence that might suggest this was a hoax
2: the first thing that springs to mind is the uh, the hair samples so harry price was always because jeff hadn't appeared for harry price and because Although there were some photos of them, they're, they're not entirely clear. Um, they did seem to get better over time, but they could have been fabricated. Harry Price was always pestering the Irvings for some kind of hard evidence. And at one stage, some hair samples were sent down to London, which Jeff said he'd plucked them from his back and his eyebrow. Um Price sent these to a specialist at the Zoological Society who analysed them and said, well, you know, it seems to be hairs from a long, longish-haired dog. And, and sure enough, the Irvings did have a sheepdog. The other thing, I think, which indicates fraud are the paw prints. They're just not very convincing. You can find photos of this... Um, hmm in my book or on on the net hmm. uh and one thing that strikes me about them is poor prints of a real animal you you see little grainy lines and not exactly fingerprints but you see all sorts of contour lines and marks and these appear to be just poked in the clay with a stick i suppose hmm. um yeah.
1: but i what- so I sort of thought you might say that about the hair samples, which is pretty similar to people who are investigating, you know, for example, the Yeti and other cryptids where you send it off and it comes back and it's it's a perfectly, you know, it's a creature known to science. Um, but almost, in a way, it makes me endeared to Jeff because those things where it's a fake... F- a fake paw print and he says he's plucked the hairs from his back that is almost also the behavior that you would expect from a trickster spirit some sort of poltergeist that is just having a laugh with you
2: yes that that seems to happen again and again in these cases Mm -hmm. that when you try and pin them down and categorize them that kind of conclusive evidence just is wanting um we talked before about other poltergeists providing very detailed information about who they were and where they lived and uh and it doesn't quite stack up when when you check historical records um jeff said he came from delhi in india he did say a few supposedly hindi words um I checked them out with um, some Hindi-speaking colleagues at work, uh, and Urdu speakers, and they said, no, this is nonsense. You know, this is gibberish. Uh, the only words that did seem to be accurate were very common words that I think would have been in general usage, like Raja or Yogi or Nabob, things that, you know, you could have picked up from films. Um that, <sighs> The other thing I, I'd like to say about the fraudulent hair samples uh, and possibly the photos as well, if you think they are faked, is I think in some of these cases where there is something genuine going on, the whether it be a medium or whether it be someone like Vory Irving, they come under this pressure to deliver. Uh, and it's sometimes for financial gain. It wasn't in this case, but it's sometimes typically in the 19th and early 20th century, a medium might be from the working classes. Uh, and Helen Duncan is a good example, very poor, uh, very unwell. They're suddenly able to earn money they weren't able to do before. Um, and it may be they do have some genuine gift. But what if that gift isn't always with them? What if it deserts them on occasion? Mm. They they're putting on shows, they have paying customers. It's show business. You don't want to disappoint your public. Um, so it may be you fabricate some things from time to time. But I don't think that negates the whole thing. Uh, I'm inclined to think something of the kind happened here, not for financial gain, but just because the Irvings were coming under such pressure to deliver proof.
0: Well, a bit, a bit, like, a bit like Jeff, maybe they, like the media, they needed to feed the beast in a way. <laughs> they, they more, let's keep it going in a way. Or, yeah. I, I love the fact that you've kind of, the more you've looked into it, the deeper you've got into it. it, it How much of an obsession has it become for you, would you say?
2: I think obsession is the right word. (laughs) I I didn't intend to spend seven years writing it. Uh, I'm I'm a very slow writer anyway, but I certainly didn't. I think I thought maybe a couple of years. Um, But as I say, the more I looked into it, it just didn't seem to be straightforward. um, And there are strong indications of fraud. There's a, a very good account by a childhood friend of Laurie Irving, a lady called Kathleen Green. Uh, she's dead now, but she gave some interviews quite recently or a couple of decades ago. And she she says Laurie was a ventriloquist. She said she could
0: right.
2: project her voice. She could create the sound of a herd of cats at the top of the field. Right. Uh, this is weird in itself because that's not really what ventriloquists do. They have to, there has to be a sound in the first place that they just use some misdirection by which they say it's not coming from me. It's coming from there. But the other thing she said uh, is one day she called around the farmhouse to see if uh, Jeff was in. And, she sneaked around the back. Now, the, the farmhouse is on a slope on this hill. So if you go around the back, you can look, look in on the first floor. And she said she looked in to one of the bedrooms and then she could see Mrs Irving and her daughter Vori were singing and laughing and they were throwing a, a biscuit tin back and forth and they were sort of carrying on and having a really good time. And they were singing a hymn. And she went back down to the front door again, knocked on the door, and said, uh, "Oh, hello! Um, Just wondering if Jeff's been around." And they said, "Oh, you just missed him. <laughs> he he was making a terrible racket. He was throwing right, a tin right. around, him and he was singing a hymn." So she was fairly sure that, that was evidence of hopes. There are indications that there were so many visitors, so frequently wanting to see or hear Jeff, that. Mrs Irving, I think, particularly didn't want to disappoint them. There's yeah. a story of her sitting in a rocking chair and kind of creaking the rocking chair on the lino and going, oh, it's him, shh, yeah. it's him, listen. Um, but against all that, we have these people at the bus depot who were convinced that Jeff had been eavesdropping on them, had stolen their sandwiches, there were people like, uh, there were some road repair men who were doing work on a road about a mile down from the farm. Uh, one of these guys was eating his sandwiches in a lunch break and he tossed away a bit of mouldy bread into the field and then he could see it moving of its own accord. Um, and and the, the landscape there is quite bare, There's not. it's not really wooded there's there's not really much opportunity for cover or for someone to hide um another chap was ploughing a field nearby and he said some stones were being thrown at him from behind a hedge and he went to look and there was no one there there's loads of accounts of things like this and and as i say there are one two, two or three people aside from the irving family who said they'd seen jeff um I spoke to, uh, was it the daughter or the niece? Anyway, it was the relative of one of these women. And I was trying to ascertain, you know, was she playing pranks? Was she the sort of person that would tell a tall tale? And she said, oh, absolutely not. No, no, she was very honest. But the strange thing is, when I was talking to this lady, she didn't seem to think the fact that her, I think it was her aunt, had seen the talking mongoose. She was more concerned to tell me about some family feud that had right. happened some years later and about how Uncle Roger had fallen out with Derek. And, and she went into great detail about this and I kept having to try and get her back to the, but, but can we get back to your aunt seeing the talking mongoose? Uh, there were two other people that said they'd seen him. Uh, so either they were fabricating it. It's possible that people
0: were so caught up in it they wanted to be part of the story um yeah i mean i i it does make you think though where you know at the height of it what life must have been like on the island like I, I just i that's just keeps going through my head that you know i mean it's reasonably big island but it's not that big it must it must have been such a huge phenomenon for for the island man at that time and it just it does make me wonder what what it was like being on the island living there during during that period it must have been quite weird
2: the other thing I was gonna say is that perhaps one reason why it hasn't been seized upon more by the tourist industry now is because there's so much else on the islands, like mm-hmm. the ferry bridge. In fact I think there's two ferries, two rival ferry bridges. <laughs> you know the ferry bridge where you have to salute the fairies, otherwise yeah. something bad will happen. And there's all sorts of uh Wonderful little spots which are haunted, and they have a whole series of uh, it's kind of Celtic folklore, but they have a slightly different take on it. There's witches that live down wells, and there's weird animals with tusks and red eyes. And initially, when the story first broke on the island, it was framed in this context of uh, these folkloric beasts. Um, it, it did occur to me that Jeff, in this helpful but rather touchy and petulant house thing, was rather like the brownie or the hob in north of England and Scotland, which is yeah. like a house fairy or a house spirit. Loads of cultures have these, you know, all over the world, these kind of house spirits. And if you're good to them, if you feed them, be okay, they might keep it clean. Uh, as Jeff kept the outbuildings free from rats, found lost duck eggs. But if you don't treat them with respect, you know, you could come back and find all your crockeries on the floor and Mm -hmm. there's paint all over the place. And um, he does seem, not that he ever expressed, talked about himself in those terms, but it does seem to be an odd, as if he's a kind of modern iteration of these very traditional uh celtic folkloric beasts as house spirits mm-hmm. um but but with all these modern trappings like gramophone you know put the bloody gramophone on you say because <laughs> he wanted to sing along like a bit of a dance and um he talked about his magic phones when margaret was saying well how how can you know all these things how how do you know about the interior of ballamore house when you know we've never been there and it's I think 20 miles away. So I've got my magic phones. Um, he, he would often talk about modern technology. He talked about Einstein. I'll split the atoms, one of his posts. <laughs> I'm the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, sorry, I could talk about Jeff
0: for hours. No, no, this is As, as no, no, you
1: this can is see. Uh, fascinating
0: well, One thing I did want to ask you is you, know, you talked about um, Harry Price, the fact that Jeff didn't like him. I uh, made it clear. Do you, do you think Jeff would have liked you? I would hope so. Um, I would
2: hope so in the sense that I'm not so much a doubter. Right. Um, an investigator called Nandor Fodor, who I think was more sympathetic, and who certainly undertook a far more thorough investigation. Because while Price was only there for, well, I think he stayed in the village a couple of nights and went up to the farmhouse a day or two Fodor actually lived in the farmhouse for a week and very thoroughly investigated and interviewed anyone that had possibly seen or heard of Jeff and he he went to this Ballamore mansion and uh, he was a lot more sympathetic and even then Jeff didn't appear to him Um, he wrote a rather hurt letter after he'd come back to London, he said, um, I was very disappointed. You know, I, I'd uh, I bought you chocolate cake and and you didn't show. <laughs> and and you're you a very naughty mongroose. Uh, <laughs> he, he was an interesting character. He was um, originally a psychoanalyst. He said he'd been trained under Freud. Right. He was from Hungary. He'd become a lawyer. He was a journalist. Then he seemed to uh, specialise in psychic investigation for society for psychical research uh so the other big archive if if people are interested in exploring this is apart from the harry price one in london in the university of cambridge is the spr archive with nandor fodor's very detailed accounts and, and most of the better photos are in that archive uh but even then jeff didn't appear for fodor um even though he took up all sorts of gifts, mm-hmm. a little rubber ball for him to play with and some cakes and chocolates
0: and things. Um, but it seems like it's easy to fall under Jeff's spell. The, the, the more you look at him, the more you do have to fall under his spell. Do you think that's true?
2: Yeah, I think he's very likeable. Uh, he has this personality. Um, and I suppose people... Feel like I did perhaps rashly. Oh, I can solve this. I can. Uh, I can work this out. Um, yeah. And you can't.
1: Well, I, I was going to say the book, the part of your book that stood out to me because I was racing towards the end and I was looking for the conclusion where you said, "Oh, it definitely was the daughter." Or in my opinion, and on page three six six, it's entitled Thou will." never get to know and you say when the present author began to research the case of the talking mongoose he was confident that a close reading of the primary sources to yeah Uh, and basically you're saying you thought you would get to a conclusion where you'd be satisfied with the outcome and you'd be able to confidently say oh it was this but then you spend the rest of the page explaining why that isn't the case and that, for me, sums up why I love the case, why we started this podcast, why I'm fascinated with the paranormal, because it's impossible to explain.
2: Yes, I think it would be disappointing if, if one was to find some definitive solution or explanation. Mm. Um, there is something rather joyous about the fact that he, he can't be pinned down um, he said, I don't want to be put in a box. I don't want to be put in a bottle. Um, there was a South African, she called herself a spiritualistic investigator and she travelled to the Isle of Man. She went to the farmhouse and said, come here, Jeff, I want you. Um, he said, no damn fear, you'll put me in a bottle. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to be categorised. He, he doesn't want to be put in uh, a box um he seems to live in between things he's sort of behind the hedges or in the cracks in the walls or um not neither here nor there um and i think rather than being disappointed that i spent a lar- large amount of my life researching <laughs> this and not coming to any definitive conclusion I thought actually it's rather charming and it's rather lovely that we don't have uh, a definitive answer. Um, mm.
1: Well, even even the photographs, as you say, they're so non-definitive. Like um, before, I got the book. I had read somewhere. I think I think it might even have been on a, on an Amazon review that uh, it contains the photograph of Jim Irving pointing to the hands of Jeff poking out from behind um, you know, one of the joists of the house. And that was the first page I turned to when I received the book through the post because I thought, oh, goodness, this is going to be interesting because who could fake that? And then I saw it and, oh, it just gives you more questions than answers because... It could be anything. It could just be a pair of socks behind there. There's nothing clear about it at all. And and like you said, rather than being frustrated or annoyed, I just became more enamoured with the case. And I almost found myself feeling like I admired Jeff for creating this sensation. And the fact that nearly 100 years later, well, 89 years later we're still talking about him and the enigma that is him i think it makes it it, well in like
0: definitely that's the word isn't it enigma that's that's the word
1: yeah well we don't live in quite the same troubled times although there are a number of troubled things but that book just took me away from it it stopped me looking at american polling and uh all of that and (laughs) that's good yeah. It 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 made me – it makes me want to – there's something about the whole case that makes you want to walk down the street and smile at everything that happens because Jeff is one of those things. He he makes you – oh, sorry, my dog's just walked in. I
2: thought that you, was Jeff. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would have been perfect, wouldn't it? No, oh, it's Henry. <laughs>
1: um, it makes you appreciate everything and – Say hello, Henry. There you go. Um, find the joy in stuff because it felt like Jeff was always trying to find the joy in life or death, whatever he was. If if you had to go one way or another, if, if you had a gun to your head, what does your heart say that Jeff was? Do you think it was paranormal or do you think it was a hoax?
2: I think there was... There were definitely some paranormal things going on. I think there was an entity, but the whole case has become hopelessly confused because the Irving family at certain points were fabricating parts of the evidence. Right. Uh, that's, that's my own take. Um, I mean, I think the photographs may actually be genuine this is maybe my gullibility on show here i know a lot of people think these are ludicrous uh and the fact that he seems to differ in each one some people have seen as sort of evidence that it's not the case but i think of jeff as a shapeshifter that there are a couple of anecdotes in jim's diaries about jeff appearing as a white cat or a pole cat uh So the fact that he's different in the photos doesn't necessarily make me think it it can't be genuine. Uh, But, you know, the hair samples, rubbish. Mm. Paw prints, I think, are rubbish. But hearing this voice when they know know the daughter is 100 feet away, they can see her. She's she's outside feeding the chickens, for example, and they can see the, the mother and the father in full view or uh that the mother's not even in there she's in the town eight miles away, and uh these kind of things or the uh the bus depot workers who who are just perplexed at how can the contents of these very detailed conversations we've had or or how can he describe the interior of our house uh, this sort of thing um so I think there was something going on,
0: but maybe I'm rather naive. <laughs> Maybe I want to believe. (laughs) Well, it would be easy to want to believe with the story. One thing I wanted to ask you is why you've been working on this labour of love. Has anything weird or paranormal happened to you while you've been investigating it?
2: I did have... So at one stage I was working very late at night uh, and I did hear a lot of tapping behind the walls which was rather disconcerting. I suspect it was mice, but... Uh, <laughs> um,
0: By hell of a coincidence.
2: Yeah, it was kind of... A, I thought it was a good encouragement. Uh, a friend of mine had an apport of a... Well, it's a little kind of yellow plastic weasel, so it appeared in his front room for no reason. Um, oh. I haven't really got anything dramatic to say. The The only... Other thing, I suppose, is when I went to the farm site, and this isn't supernatural, but it did leave a strong impression on me. Um, there was a family of hares playing on the farm site and they seemed totally unafraid of me and my friend that was there. Um, and it was just joyous. It was just wonderful to see them. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'd seen hares, certainly not that close but they were just chasing each other and rolling around playing. Uh, and although it wasn't supernatural, it was strange, I thought, that they were so close and unafraid to us. And I think it did colour my view of Jeff as a nature spirit, going back to the traditional folklore experience. Um, However, that was in May, and it was a lovely day. I'm sure if I went there in November or December you know, howling with <laughs> rain and wind, I might have a different view well yeah.
1: it's interesting you say that because one of one of the questions that I had noted down was um the similarity between Jeff and Pan, so the nature Spirit Pan, which is traditionally told of as a, a trickster and seems to know things about your life that's that's interesting you should say that does did did that occur to you then that maybe maybe that's what jeff was he was a nature spirit coming through and giving a backstory
2: yeah i didn't think of pan that's a good one but I, definitely nature spirit there was also um i mentioned this investigator fodor he when he went back to london to his uh spr officers. he took with him a little piece of grass from jeff's nest he had a little nest at the top floor and a little rubber ball that jeff played with and he had one of his mediums read it and it and she talks about nature spirits um and she was very much of the opinion that this was something of the land uh, that that had been there it's interesting to speculate whether Jeff and and these other sort of similar poltergeist-type entities, whether they're tied to a place or people or whether they can move around. I, I've been reading recently about one or two cases where people have all sorts of extraordinary things happen in a, their childhood home, but when they move, it seems to follow them which may suggest it's them. Um, I did try and find out whether anyone who lived there after the Irvings had experienced anything. There were one or two people who said, there was a woman who lived there in the 60s, well, she was a girl in the 60s, and she said there were some weird whisperings in the rafters, but not actual words as such, but... um, However, there were also people that lived there who said there was absolutely nothing supernatural at all. Um, And yes, it makes you wonder whether these things only materialise for a person that's sensitive or sympathetic. Um, And has any of this changed
1: your worldview? I mean, obviously I know the style of, book that you write and you write for the 14 times um and so you're you're obviously clearly open-minded but after you know digging in for nearly 400 pages into the jeff case did it make you feel more i don't know open to the weird possibilities that this existence offers Are you did it sort of make you think okay there really is more to this world than meets the eye
2: yes i think so um i think i was always that way inclined Mm. but having gone into such detail and i think it was after the book came out I, i went to some spiritualist demonstrations and sort of public mediumship uh and and had a private sitting with with one medium with varying results, as you'd expect, some of which were laughably rubbish and some of which were spookily accurate. Um, But again, I'm not entirely sure what what I saw or what I witnessed. Um, This lady was able to tell me all sorts of things that I don't know how she knew them about family and stuff, Uh, but that's not necessarily agreeing with what she was saying that she was in contact with these deceased relatives there may be another explanation
0: and what and what's your what what are you obsessing about now (laughs) now that jeff's kind of done and dusted um i'm writing
2: a book about a rather curious man called dr eric dingwall who was also a psychic investigator at the same time as harry price they were friends and rivals and enemies. Uh Dingwall was a lot more skeptical than Price. There were a few mediums he, he was uh, convinced were, were real. But he was also um an anthropologist and he seems to have been obsessed with sex. He 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 was a friend of Kinsey and he seems to have been a kind of British version of Kinsey. Um he was a conscientious objector in World War One, but in World War Two he uh worked for british intelligence in the field of black propaganda trying to demoralize the german population um yeah. and he was an advisor to the police when the police had a, a a case with a kind of occult angle or a weird sex angle they would call him dr Dingwall. he was the curator of uh the British Library's private case, which was all the obscene and libelous and pornographic material.
0: Wow. That sounds sounds like that's got a bit of everything,
1: right? Yeah. When will we see that book out?
0: Uh,
2: Hopefully next year.
1: Okay. And will you be writing an article about it in the Fourteen Times to look out for?
2: Yes, yes, definitely. I shall try and plug it as much as I
0: can. Well, we're, well, hopefully you'll come back and talk to us about that as well. would be yes. great.
1: And, and, and before before you go, so um, I think you said, uh, Jeff, uh, the strange tale of an extra special talking mongoose. It's going to be reprinted very shortly.
2: As we speak, I am oh, told fantastic. it is at the printers. Uh, so I'm told by the publishers that um, in the next few weeks, there should be a uh, second printing available. Excellent.
1: So um, I think you've got a website where people can keep up to date with when they can buy the book again, haven't you?
2: Yes.
0: Jeffmongoose.co.uk.
2: Easy to remember.
0: And and we'll put links to that in the uh, description of the podcast so people can go there. Yeah, perfect. Yeah.
1: Oh, Christopher, Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. absolutely fascinating. Like you, I could could talk about this for 8, 10, 12 hours or days. It's... Amazing. And I just want to say once again how much I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I'm going to read it again and then I'm going to pass it to... So um, I'm dedicating today's episode to uh, a friend of the show, Claire Dingley, who years ago, before I'd even conceived of doing this podcast, she told me that this was her favourite paranormal case. And I know she's going to be one one of the first people to download this and if ever we're drunk together in the pub she loves talking about Jeff the talking mongoose so now <laughs> I know more about it that I can <laughs> intrigue her with. So thank you for your time and um we will speak to you again soon about your new book, I hope.
0: Thank you. Yeah it's been brilliant. A pleasure.
2: Before we go, could I ask you two chaps, what's your own take on the Jeff case? Uh oh good question. Or genuine or-
1: um so I think my take is that so before I read your book and the time I contacted you to get the book I thought it was going to be a hoax I thought it was from from everything that I'd read in the sort of the mainstream press I thought it was the case of the daughter um throwing you know throwing her voice whatever that means um now that I've read about it, I don't think it was a corporeal animal. I think it was yeah, I think it was aligned to the poltergeist element. And I this this is a bit off piste, but I don't think it was the spirit of a person that previously lived. I think it was um almost like a tulpa it was it, you know it had come together and was inventing its own backstory um, and it was neither sinister or benevolent I think it was it sort of just existed that's how I think of it
0: yeah and that, for me it's like because it is kind of almost cliche I mean there are some cliches but it's kind of cliche free of what what you'd normally associate with these stories it just leaves you scratching your head completely because it doesn't seem to follow any of those tropes and the other thing that obsesses me about it is probably more than any other kind of paranormal thing we've looked at or I've looked at I don't care (laughs) and that's that that is the big thing I take away with it. I so want it to be true that it, you know, you could almost present me with anything and I'd still say, well, no, there's still some doubt here. And I love that about it. Do you know what I mean? It's that it's perfect in that sense. Yeah. Thank
2: you.
1: Uh, Wonderful. Thank you, Christopher.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. It's good fun. Well, but I could have, Talk to christopher all day i don't know about you ben but uh, oh yeah oh i just i love that story so much and it's one of the weird. i mean we i know we can we try and take an agnostic view to these kind of subjects and we try and be take a cynical look and uh take things that there were try and do both see it from both sides of the story but there is something about that story that i i just i just so want it to be true mm. that you you could you could show me a kind of an animatronic jeff and tell me that's what it is and i'd still go no 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 it can't be true that can't be true it's just an incredible story mm. that's so engaging and i so want it to be true yeah
1: no so so do i and i think what's so interesting about uh, Christopher is that I think he approaches this from the same angle as us in terms of what is what what is the sum total of the evidence and like I said towards the end of that interview he has written in his book that he was very much expecting to find an answer to this and like I said when I yeah. first got the book I was expecting this to be almost an expose of how this fraud was pulled off but every time you pull on a thread which you think is going to offer the answer it turns into a mongoose shaped non-thread and that's what i love about it so much this is a proper enigma and it's just recent enough that there is good recording of it the the daughter of the story only died in 2005, and she maintained right. to her deathbed that this was nothing to do with her. She claims that there was no hoax, there was no fraud. And I always like, sort of, one of our sort of key things is you know, follow the money, but also follow people's conscience. And yeah. at the end of your life that would have been the perfect time to go gosh i fooled you all but she didn't she said yeah it was all true and that again is why i love this story
0: and well it is so bizarre that you almost go if you were going to make it up you wouldn't make it up like that would you do you know what i mean there is so much no, that's no. wrong with it and bizarre and and it, and it's almost like you said in the intro it's almost the the one of the you know it's the kind of story that made us want to do this podcast because every time you look at a bit of evidence, something else pops out where you go, yeah, but that's a bit weird.
1: The other the other thing that listeners should do, there was a BBC radio play about this, which if you're in the UK, you can still get on the BBC Sounds app that was released in uh, May of 2020, so this year. And like I was saying to... Uh, Christopher a lot of people put their reputations on the line a lot of people sort of outside of the sort of the core case if you like and uh, in 1937 a, a gentleman took the BBC to court because there was an internal BBC memo about uh, a person called a Lambert and it said that uh, he shouldn't hold a position on the British Film Institute board because he believed in the Jeff the Talking Mongoose case. And in fact, the uh, mm. the court w- where the memo was introduced to heard the phrase uh, that he was off his head and uh, he actually yeah. won damages of £7,600, that- which was an enormous amount in
0: 1937. Which in those yeah. days was a fortune, right? Yeah, an absolute fortune. And again, it just adds to the kind of bizarreness of this whole story. I mean, we didn't cover that particularly, but I had heard that story. And it is probably one of the few times that, you know, the paranormal world, even a, a, a tangent has been in court. But, you know, so they weren't saying that it was necessarily true, but it it was the, the kind of was the defamation of his character that, that was right. yeah, being... Yeah being called into question. So so there is more to this story. There's fascinating angles wherever wherever you look, right?
1: Yeah. Well, it became known as the mongoose case and I think that's that sort of sums it all up. If <laughs> if Jeff is yeah. real or he's not real, you can't help but feel happy that Jeff came into existence in whatever form and however that happened. And I yeah. yeah. I'd love to meet a talking mongoose.
0: I'm I'm with you. And uh I thoroughly recommend uh, as we said on the podcast, the book the book is gonna be uh reissued uh hopefully in the next few weeks. So we have in the title of this podcast we've put a link to Christopher's site. So keep an eye out for when it's out and definitely definitely read it because it is it, oh, it's fascinating and as ben said his his writing style and the way way he approaches the subject just gets the facts over to you but in a in a really entertaining and uh exciting way which is uh it's what we're all about here right
1: absolutely in an extra special way as jeff would say
0: <laughs> perfect on that note um well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Certainly, I, I, I'm going to speak for Ben on this one as well. It's been a pleasure for both of us to do this episode. And we'll be back with more quantum mechanicsness next week.
1: Absolutely. And if there's anything you should take away as a learning from this, if you hear any bangs or creaks at night, just ask is that Jeff?
0: the quantum mechanics.